turn to Matthew 18, verses 1 through 5, and then chapter 19, verses 13 through 15. We welcome family and friends who are here visiting for the baptism and new members, as well as others that are visiting among us. We're going through the Gospel of Matthew on Sunday mornings together, today combining two passages on this occasion of the baptisms. Hear now the word of God. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Chapter 19. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God remains forever. As you enter the worship service today, you see them. You can look around you right now. They're behind you. They're in front of you. They're around you. Their noises fill the air with great joy. Out of the mouths of babes and infants, the Lord has ordained praise. We are thankful for God's covenant children among us here at this church. Some of you have them. Some of you have grandchildren. Some of you are single, and some of you have nieces and nephews. We all have experiences with children. And right here, these children are part of our church family. Parents, this is the most important responsibility we are given. One person said, I wonder if the only reason God is keeping me alive right now is for the care of my children. We are stewards of the children God has entrusted, entrusted to us. The family is designed by God to be a worshiping unit, a discipleship group that prays together, that worships together, that sings together, that opens the Bible together. No wonder Satan attacks the family. God deals with family from generation to generation, and Satan hates it. Satan wants you and your spouse to be at war together. Satan wants you siblings never to talk to each other, but to have bitterness separate you and coldness settle in your hearts, especially at Thanksgiving time. Satan doesn't want you to confess your sin. Satan wants you to say you are right and they are wrong and you can prove it. Beloved, we need to be on our guard here. This passage teaches us that children can teach us something about the kingdom of God. It teaches us that Jesus loves his covenant children. First, we see the disciples who are hindering children from coming to Jesus. We're picking up in chapter 19. Parents were bringing their children to Jesus. Throughout Matthew, people come to Christ. He is abundant in compassion. This is not something probably that happened just once but over and over again. And the disciples see it, and you would think 
They're excited. They're thankful. They're smiling. Yes, no, maybe so. None of the above. They are angry, particularly here probably with the children and the parents. They are so hard-hearted. Jesus, you are wasting your time with them. Jesus, you don't have time for them. This reflected the thought of the culture of the day. What destroys a man, according to the Jewish Talmud? Morning sleep, midday wine, and chattering with children. In the first century, children were insignificant. Nobody gave them much thought. They had about the status of a slave. They're going to ruin your life. The great hang with the great. In the ancient Roman world, children were abused and marginalized. Abortion and infanticide were common. Six out of ten children in that day died before age 16. Our culture is not much different. Many people look at children as inconveniences, the wicked evil of abortion, the widespread physical, sexual, and emotional abuse of children. The disciples here are behaving like the Pharisees, confident in their own righteousness, looking down on others. Go back to chapter 18. One chapter earlier, they're talking among themselves, they're discussing together, and they're saying out loud, you know what? Who is the greatest among us? Where did this come from? Probably because Jesus had been talking about his death, and they're thinking, well, when he dies, who's going to take charge? That's astounding. These guys are nobodies. Who's the greatest? Did it come out of the transfiguration that Peter and James and John are up there on the mountain? That they are the elite? They are the best of the best? And the rest of these guys, they didn't see Jesus and Elijah and Moses like we did. This wasn't the first time they said it. When they're going to the upper room, same thing. When they're leaving the upper room, same thing. The sin of pride. This led to Satan's fall, to the fall of Adam and Eve. It is the heart of sin that is behind pretty much every sin we commit. Pride is a sin we can't see easily in ourselves, but we see it very clearly in others. Until God's word by his spirit shines in our hearts, we just think of all the problems out there and we don't realize the biggest enemy is the enemy within. It was 1964. A 22-year-old boxer had defeated the world heavyweight champion. And he said, I'm the greatest. There's never been one like me. Who was that? Muhammad Ali. Pride is everywhere in sports. It's everywhere in our culture. We have a month that is supposed to be about pride. Worshiping the creature rather than the, than the creator. We are by nature turned in on ourselves. The disciples here are behaving like unbelievers. And beloved, when we sin in this way, that's how we are. The words that come out of our mouths express our hearts. 
This kind of pride is a failure to humble ourselves before God, and it leads to wreckage in every human relationship. Behind the discord, behind the bitterness that you have with someone perhaps in your family or neighborhood or church or office is pride. The disciples here were called by Jesus to deny themselves, and they are asserting themselves. They were called to take up their cross and follow him, and they're living for their own glory. And Jesus, go back to chapter 19 now, rebukes them. Jesus has righteous indignation because these parents, uh, these disciples are not letting the parents bring their children to Christ. Jesus says the curse is so great that if you receive a child in Jesus' name, you receive Jesus. But if you cause one of these little ones to stumble, chapter 18, verse 6, it would be better for you to swim while wearing cement shoes. What's going to happen if that takes place, kids? A millstone around our neck. That's how serious Jesus takes this. How do we hinder children from coming to Jesus? One way we do this is failing to pray. It's so easy to be distracted and so easy not to pray. Beloved, our church directory is filled with children. We want to be encouraged to look at those children in the directory each week, pray for them by name, and then look them in the eye on Sunday morning. All of us here, as a child is baptized today, Benjamin, are reminded of him and the other children that God has blessed us with. It's an encouragement to pray for them. We can hinder children from coming to Jesus by failing to teach them. Sometimes kids have only one believing parent. Timothy's father was an unbelieving Greek. His mother were believers. So this is an encouragement to come alongside single parents. Maybe it's the grandparents who are believers and the parents aren't. An encouragement there for grandparents to pray for these children. How do we hinder kids from coming to Christ? By exasperating them. Ephesians 6, fathers do not provoke your children to anger, but that can be true of dads and moms, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Godly discipline is Christ-centered. It's not heavy and harsh. It's not severe and insulting or threatening. How do we hinder our children from coming to Jesus? By treating them as if they're the center of the universe. The opposite of the culture that says kids are a nuisance is the idea that kids are an idol, that all of life is about kids, that we will go to church, kids, as long as you don't have something else, sports on Sunday, or as long as we don't have something better to do, then we'll kind of fit it in. The kid-centric world we live in says kids are a blank slate. They give your life purpose and meaning. If you have the right books and the right education, they will turn out like you want. That seeps its way into churches as well. We know our children are born sinners like we are. The Catechism of the World says, the chief end of man is to glorify your child and help him to enjoy himself forever. <laughs> Remember Elf? 
If our kids had their way, our kids as well, they would climb up and grab candy for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and have ice cream as an entree. Beloved, a child, and we as well, need to know about our sin, our Savior, and our call by Jesus to service. Second, the parents who bring children to Jesus. So the disciples are rebuked. The parents and children are coming, much like would have been happening not only in this day, but in the Jewish culture in the day before Christ. People would bring their children to a rabbi to be blessed. Do you remember Genesis 48? Joseph, his two sons are blessed by Jacob. Jesus himself was held in the hands of Simeon in the temple as a young boy and blessed. Some people say, well, these maybe weren't little children. But if you read the parallels, Luke calls them infants here. Mark says Jesus took these little children in his arms, laid his hands on them, and began blessing them. If Bobby and Arelli's son was 18 years old, Bobby would not have been holding Benjamin in his arms as an 18-year-old, right? <laughs> Just think about that picture. Of course, these are probably young kids, infants, maybe all different ages. Just as parents brought their children to be circumcised before the children understood the promises of God in the Old Testament, so they are bringing them to Jesus now for a blessing. It's the same pattern of God's covenant dealings with his people. And Jesus, who has healed several children, including the boy demon possessed one chapter earlier, has amazing care, compassion, time, and love for these children, for the marginalized, for the weak, for the sick. He touches them. He doesn't say that you're without sin. He doesn't say that all babies are saved automatically. The blessing and the prayer of Jesus here is the blessing of the covenant, the riches of God's promises of salvation. And it's a reminder to us, an encouragement, parents, that by the grace of God to point your kids to Jesus. How do we do that? First, by daily telling them Jesus loves them. Over and over again. By daily telling them that you love them. Over and over again. And showing it in the compassion and the care and the way you speak to them and the time that you spend with them. Mom and Dad, God loves our children more truly and dearly than we do. Remind them of that. When they do good things, when they do bad things, God loves them the same in Christ. I don't know about you, but I find as a parent, sometimes I will not talk to my kids about the love of Christ for them if I am not knowing and experiencing that love in my heart if I'm not assured of God's love for me, I'm not going to talk to my kids about that. And it can become a spiral of legalistic self-righteousness and harshness. And the family can easily just kind of spiral off. Mom and dad, God delights in you. God has affection and enjoyment of you. God loves you. God likes you. And the same is true for your covenant children.
We point our kids to Jesus by praying for them. We pray for the children in the womb as we prayed this morning, before they're born. We point our children to Jesus by reminding them of God's covenant promises to them. Anybody heard of Hudson Taylor? Missionary to China, died in 1905. Just this week, his great-great-grandson, I heard, is walking with the Lord, fluent in Mandarin, and leading a seminary there. That is all to the praise of God. God's covenant promises are yes and amen from generation to generation in Jesus Christ. How do we point our kids and bring them to Christ? We welcome children into the kingdom of God. God does this, and we bring them through baptism. Charles Spurgeon said, children are brought to the Savior here, not to the baptismal font in Matthew 19. Is he right? Well, yes, they're not brought to baptism here. This is not baptism. But when did Christian baptism begin? Not until Matthew 28. We read that earlier. Trinitarian Christian baptism hadn't begun yet. What's happening here then? This is not a proof text for infant baptism. There is no one proof text. It's the entirety of how God works covenantally in Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. Jesus welcomes the children. This might be new to you. This might be something that you kind of don't like or you don't think is biblical. We want to be patient and loving and search the Scriptures. And if you disagree, talk to me afterwards. We're open here to talk. What happens here is in keeping with the biblical practice of welcoming children as members of the kingdom, the church, and the family of God. In the Old Testament, the sign of circumcision was the sign of entrance into the visible covenant community. That meant that the children of godly parents were in the covenant of grace by faith in Jesus one day and by externally a part of the covenant community through the sign. This is important. The sign doesn't mean that they are internally elect or saved. Not in circumcision, not in baptism. They are a part of the visible covenant community. How are they saved? By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But how are children addressed? In the church, they're not pagans. They're being brought up in the Lord, Ephesians 6.1. Peter says the promise is for you and your children and for all who are afar off, all whom the Lord our God will call. And so we baptize an adult who converts. We had two of them today, praise be to God. And we baptize the children of covenant-believing parents. Covenant theology is this. God says, I will be your God, you will be my people. The summary is this. God's covenant of grace with his people in Christ is a loving relationship between God and his people. I am his, he is mine, and his banner over me is love. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Did you see that? Meaning to these children and to others like them. Church is not just for adults. Neither is the sign of entrance into the covenant community. Baptism, just for adults. 
Jesus is the Lord of the covenant, the king of the kingdom. He says, these children are citizens of my kingdom by grace. They're born dead in sins, yes. Baptism is not done because it's removing original sin, because it's cute, because it saves. Why then are the the children of believing parents baptized? Because God established his church in the days of Abraham. Were children in it then? Yes. They must remain there until he puts them out. Has God ever removed children from the church, from the covenant community? No. They are still then members of his church and entitled to baptism, the sign of entrance in to the covenant community. We call upon them to trust in Christ. We call upon them daily to repent and believe, just like ourselves. But the kingdom of God belongs to them. Do you see what Jesus says? What's the kingdom of God? The spiritual realm where Jesus is king and redeemer of his people. He rescues. He saves. He protects. He gives eternal life to his people. And the children of believing parents are a part of this kingdom. Beloved, where it says kingdom, don't put justification. See that? Jesus doesn't say these children are justified. He says they are part of my flock, just like I have been saying from the days of Genesis. If it's right for infants to be brought to Christ, then the sign of the covenant shouldn't be denied to them. If Christ lays his hands on an infant and blesses them, as he does here in Matthew 19, as partakers of the covenant, if he welcomes them as citizens of his kingdom, if he says the children belong to him, why would we not give them the sign that signifies this? These words were a part of the early baptismal formula. Do not hinder them. Jesus has a special love for his covenant children. How do we bring our children to Jesus? By bringing them to corporate worship. Worship is intergenerational. The kids are members of this church. Here's what one person said. Do you know that the local church is the only place on earth where little children, the elderly, families, singles, widows, adopted orphans, all of different ancestries, colors, and socioeconomic backgrounds come together to sing songs of victory in Christ, partake of one Lord's Supper, and confess one Christian faith. Nowhere else does this happen. All by God's grace. Kids, we're glad you're here. We want you to come to remember that worship is caught, sometimes more than taught, and to pray for the Holy Spirit to be at work. We bring our children to Jesus through family devotions. Don't take this as a guilt trip, but if you don't open the Bible with your kids and wife at home, please begin. If you don't know where to start, begin in John 1 or Genesis 1. We want, as a church family, to cast ourselves on Christ, to pray for the Spirit to work in our hearts, to read Scripture, to have catechism and singing and praying as a family? Beloved, if you don't pray for your child today, who will? Hopefully the rest of the church family will come alongside. 
But we must not neglect this opportunity, this duty, this joy, and this privilege. We bring our kids to Christ when we bring them to Sunday school and catechism. We as a church are here to encourage each other. This does not replace the work of the parents, but it comes alongside. And if you are serving in these ways, we thank God for you. This is a part of what Jesus is talking about. If you're helping in the nursery and in Sunday school and in youth group and in catechism and in other things, Jesus is pleased with that. You are caring for these children, which ultimately are his children. How do we point our kids to Christ? By our godly example. Moms and dads, do you see the importance of living out the Christian faith every day, especially in our marriage, in front of our kids? That we teach our kids to serve those in the church, those outside the church. That we teach them, above all else, the brevity of life. Our life is a vapor. What do we want for our kids most? That they would know Jesus as Savior. That they would love Jesus because he first loved them. That they would enter the kingdom of God by the Spirit. And that brings us to our third point. How do we come to Jesus? Well, Matthew tells us. Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of God. This doesn't mean irresponsibility. This doesn't mean immaturity. What is the analogy that Jesus is drawing from here? When you have a newborn infant, what describes that infant more than anything else? Helplessness. Dependence. That infant won't survive apart from a mother, and motherhood is the absolute epitome of dying to self, 24-7, serving and loving these children. Mothers, God is glorified by the way you love these kids all day, every day, all night. We thank God for you. Helplessness. So it is with us, loved ones. We don't enter God's kingdom by greatness or popularity, by money or success, by power or self-sufficiency, or by being first. You enter God's kingdom by being needy and dependent, weak and helpless, saying, God, apart from you, I can do nothing. My heart beats today because of your providence in giving me another day of life. I eat food today because you have provided it. I come to worship today because your spirit has drawn me. I trust you because you have shown me the beauty of Jesus, his all-sufficient saving work, his merit, his blood, his death, his resurrection, his love for me. It's all by God's grace. I need you, God, every hour. What else do kids teach us about entering the kingdom? Trust. Kids, in the summer when you go to the pool and mom and dad are there, what do you do when they're in the pool there waiting? You jump. What is faith? You've learned this in catechism, kids. Faith in Christ is trusting in him alone for salvation. The world says to you, kids, believe in yourself, you can do anything. That's a lie. God's word says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What do we learn from children about the kingdom? Humility. 
Jesus gives an object lesson to the disciples. You guys want to talk about greatness? I'm going to show you a picture of greatness in my kingdom. He puts a child there, Matthew 18, right before them. Look around, Mom and Dad, they're here. It would be as if one of these kids was brought up and you looked at this. And Jesus says, do you see? Yes, this child is born sinful. Yes, children are selfish. He's not saying that. What is he teaching us? Remember? Dependence, trust, humility. Unless you turn from pride to self, unless you repent and believe, unless you turn from disordered, selfish darkness to the light of the gospel, which you can only do by the power of the Holy Spirit and the kindness of God, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. God, we need your spirit. One man said, great men never know that they are great, but small men never know that they are small. What does that mean? Great men are so given to doing what God has called them to do, they never stop to think or boast about their personal greatness. It's never about them. Small men are so wrapped up in themselves that they never realize that they are midgets. I'm going to give us some quotes. We must have complete confidence in God and no confidence in ourselves. That's what Jesus is saying. You say, whoa. This is not fake humility. This is not an inferiority complex. This is not being hard on yourself. This is not self-pity. We repent of all those which are forms of pride. This is self-forgetfulness, self-denial, which only comes as we consider the greatness of God, his holiness, and his love to us in Jesus. To grow in humility, the first step is to say today, mom and dad, I am a proud man. I am a proud woman. Have you ever said that before God? That's the first step. Spurgeon. I quoted him before. I love Spurgeon. Here he is again. I believe that every Christian man has the choice between being humble or being humbled. Same is true with women. Lowliness of heart. That's what Jesus is speaking of. Kingdom greatness is found in an attitude of trustful gospel humility, not demanding my own way and not saying, look at how great I am. Where do we see this most? In Christ, who humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, for prideful sinners like me. Thanks be to God. He came from heaven to earth to become sin for us, to be judged in my place, so that now, by his grace, I might grow in humility in how I treat someone else as well. Matthew 18, 5 and 6. Without humility, there's no love. If there's an absence of love in your marriage, and we all struggle here, we need to go back here. If you are proud, if you are full of yourself, then you may love your spouse in the way that your spouse makes you feel. But you will not love your spouse. See the difference? If your priorities are what matter to you, then you can stop on someone else, but you cannot love them. Without humility, there's no love. Heaven is a world of surprises and revelations, Edward said. 
The last will be first, and the first will be last. Who are the great ones? Jesus tells us. How you relate to a child and to those who are lowly indicates how you relate to the triune God. There's a direct parallel. One of the best ways to show our gratitude to the Lord is by loving those who are usually overlooked. Children, prisoners, the elderly, those with disabilities, you name it, it's across the board. The world says, you hang with the great, you'll be great. Jesus flips it around. This shows us how we live as a congregation in gratitude to Christ. We lay aside any remnant of self-goodness we may think we have. We admit our total spiritual bankruptcy before God, and we drink deeply of the love and grace of God for us in Jesus. And then in deep awareness of what you have received, Emmaus Road, extend that grace to others. And remember that to receive the kingdom of God as a child is to grow. Kids, you don't stay two years old your whole life. Mom and dad, you grow up in the knowledge and love of Jesus. And may us lift up your hearts in prayer and love to God. Whether you are young or old, at the beginning of life or the end of life, you are made in the image of God. You have a soul that will never die. You have a body and soul that's being conformed to the image of Jesus. And we are to be as a helpless, trusting, humble, growing child in matters of salvation. I had a song request this week from two people. One was our three-year-old son. The other was from our dear 99-year-old brother. Do you know what they both asked me to sing? Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. Amen. Emmaus Road, let's stand and sing.